Well, if you will, you turn with me to Acts 5, and we're going to be in verses 17 to 42. It's a, it's a big chunk today. But as you turn there, as we look at the early church in the book of Acts, we see over and over and over again a lot of boldness. We see people who were filled with the Holy Spirit, people that nothing could stop from sharing the good news of Jesus. And as they are going out boldly sharing the good news of Jesus, and as they cannot be stopped, understandably, with that, they are people that would be met with resistance. But when they faced opposition time and time again, their response was resilience. And this is what we see today in Acts 5, 17 to 42. We see resilience in the face of waves of opposition and waves of persecution. And so let's read Acts 5, 17 to 42. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force. For they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. 
So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you speak through me as I preach it. God, give me the, the strength to be able to preach your word. Help us to see as we look at this passage what you were saying to in the original context to the original audience and also help us to see how this impacts our lives today right here and now in jesus name amen so like i said that was a big chunk and we're gonna we're gonna unpack that now but if you're a human and everyone in here is I think it's safe to say that you have faced adversity before of some sort, whether that's big or small. You have probably faced some sort of opposition. And a lot of times, as you face difficulties and you face oppositions, opposition, it comes in waves. It's not just, oh, I, felt I faced one difficult thing and then you, know, you have a long time where you don't face anything. A lot of times it just seems like it just keeps crashing on you. Now, I've been here for four and a half years, so by now I'm sure you know that I love baseball. And coming up in a couple weeks is one of the best weeks of baseball that we get. You know, we get the Little League World Series. And the best Little League all-star teams around the world come together in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And you have the American division and you have the international division. And those teams, they battle it out. And by the end of it, you have one world champion of 11 and 12-year-old Little League baseball. And growing up in Pennsylvania, this was a big family trip for us every year. We would go to the semifinals. We would see the American Championship and the International Championship. We'd go every single year. And it was an incredible experience. But even more than the experience for me and my family, it's the experience of a lifetime for these 11 and 12-year-old kids. And one of the things that makes the Little League World Series so special is that these are normal kids that just kept going through waves of difficulties to get to this point. They start off on their Little League teams playing for whatever company sponsored their Little League team. For me, when I was at that age, we were TR Associates. From there, the best of your town makes the All-Stars. And it's not just your city. It wasn't like, for me, the, the best of Scranton, Pennsylvania. But it was Archibald All-Stars and Jessup All-Stars, North Scranton, South Side, all of those. And we would battle it out. If you make it to the top of that, that you get through that wave, you get to regionals. You get through that wave, you get to states. If you win in the state tournament, you get to go to the national regionals. And if you win the national regionals, then you get to be one of the 10 teams representing the United States in the Little League World Series. Onto another wave of difficulty to be crowned the champion of the United States and a chance to play the international champion to be the world champion. A summer that would have began by playing for TR Associates, a company that, as I looked it up 20 years later, I still have no idea what they do. 
They have a website. They, it, I know their address, and I know they're still in business. I don't know what they do, but they sponsored my Little League team. But those waves of competition tried to end those teams' journey. Right now, as they're probably in the regionals of some sort, you know, they're going through them right now. But the teams that make it to the Little League World Series rise above those waves time and time again to get to the biggest stage. And we see in Acts, the church faced waves of difficulty. Waves of difficulty much more difficult than the all-star Little League teams of their area. They faced waves of persecution, of immense difficulty. And in our passage today, that only continues. We see Luke recording three consecutive waves of persecution in our passage today, and each of them is succeeded by remarkable resiliency. Acts 5 is helpful to all of us because though few of us will ever likely face persecution in the specific ways that the early church did— None of us will ever entirely escape the world's repression either. And God has a message for the church today from the early church 2,000 years ago. The first of three deadly waves of persecution is described in Acts 5, 17 to 25. We see the apostles are imprisoned. After the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, the church continued to minister in unusual power very often doing so in public. Signs and wonders were being done among the people regularly by the apostles. Multitudes were being saved. People were being healed, and the Sadducees were seeing this, and they were full of jealousy. In the midst of one of these sessions, the temple police suddenly closed in, and they took all 12 of the apostles captive. They, they tossed them in jail. And as they do that, they, they weren't trying to prevent heresy. They weren't trying to protect the people. They weren't even trying to maintain God's honor. They were simply jealous. It is really important in our lives that we are aware of our own jealousy. Otherwise, we will fall into the same trap as the Sadducees do here. Jealousy is something that we need to be so careful of because it can lead us right into sin, and so often as it does that, completely irrationally. I mean, think about it. What did the apostles do to outrage the religious leaders? And here's the answer. They, they healed people. They loved people. They shared the gospel with people. Now, did the religious leaders really want more people sick and more people demon-possessed around them? Well, of course not. But more than they didn't want people sick and didn't want people demon-possessed, they absolutely did not want to lose an ounce of the power and the influence that they held. And the same thing happens today all the time. <coughs> Many Many hostile unbelievers attack mercy-minded Christian organizations like orphan care ministries or crisis pregnancy centers. Why? Well, it's the same reasons. Many people hate the message and the motives of these organizations, and many have political agendas that clash with a kingdom agenda. So be prepared. 
because opposition often follows those who do good. These religious leaders here, they were jealous for their own honor and power, and so what they do is they throw the apostles into prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and gave them instructions. Go and stand in the temple. Speak to the people all the words of this life. And that's exactly what they did. And what's really funny here, too, is that the Sadducees didn't even believe in angels. And then here, the apostles are in prison, and the angel of the Lord comes and frees the apostles and, and commissions them to go out and teach the gospel. And we see this story. Well, why the angelic intervention? God was teaching the twelve that he can deliver his servants from the world's oppression anytime he sees fit. In Acts 5, the angelic liberation was not only meant to free the apostles, but it was meant to encourage them. And as we read this passage all these years later, it is meant to encourage us. The apostles now knew that God could deliver them from the world clutch, world's clutches anytime and anywhere. Not only were the apostles divinely delivered, but they were divinely commissioned. They were sent out. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The language here suggests a command to exercise tenacious steadfastness. They were to hold their ground and stand firm and deliver the entire message of new life in Christ. And that same command is true for us right now. I remember when I was in high school, and I had always heard about missionaries uh, overseas and the difficulties that they face, the persecution that happens in other countries in our world, but I had never met someone that had gone through that persecution, that had dealt with that in real life. And then we had a, a missionary that was in Burma come and talk to our church about the things that were going on in Burma and how they were, you know, there were these underground churches and how they were out sharing Bibles and the danger that it involved. And I was blown away because I, like, I knew this was happening, yet here I have this person that is really like, he's experienced it. And it was crazy. And the thought would go, went through my high school aged mind at the time, but why continue? And I knew the answer, but as he's sharing the story, it's like, goodness gracious, why, why continue and take all these risks? Why do we continue right now? It's because we must share the liberating message of life in Christ to a lost and dying world. Jesus brings us life. And the apostles knew this so well. Jesus said to them in John 14, 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He actually said that in John 6, 35, not 14, 6. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we see in 1 John 1 and 2, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The apostles knew that Jesus brings life from what they had heard and what they had seen and what they had touched. They knew it so deeply. Regardless of our situation or how hostile and oppressive our surroundings are, we are meant to share Christ by life and by work. Our message, if we are true to Christ, will not only be about a doctrine, but will be about a life. We see in verse 28, the high priest conceived that the apostles merely preached doctrine. We see them say, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. But the Christian message is so much bigger than that. It is like Christ. It is the way, the truth, and the life. We are to tell people about this life. We are to tell people as they did that Jesus is the Messiah. We are to proclaim his sacrificial death on our behalf, his substitutionary death and his resurrection as the apostles proclaimed the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus. And we are to proclaim the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us as believers whom God has given to those who obey him. If holiness is not proclaimed as the effect of the indwelling Spirit of God, then we're not telling the people all about this life. This is the gospel that the, uh, that the apostles proclaimed. And this is the gospel that we proclaim right now, today. That first wave of opposition and persecution crashed upon the apostles, and they rose above it. We see they immediately went to the most public place that they could, the temple. And as soon as they could, early in the morning, they were preaching the gospel. When they were thought to be in prison, it wasn't even known that they were out of prison yet, yet here they are, obediently teaching God's word to the common people. At this point, the high priest and those with him called together the council, and they sent to the prison to have the apostles brought. They solemnly had gathered to deal with these troublemakers. But when the officers came, they found almost everything as it should be. They saw that the prison was locked securely, just like it should have been. They saw the guards were at the doors on duty. They weren't asleep on the job. They were were there. They were alert. But when they unlocked the doors, they opened them. There was the problem. It was empty. There was no one in there. And the captain of the temple and the chief priest, they heard this, and they, they're confused. They're perplexed. They don't know what to do next. They weren't prepared for that to happen. They were going to open the doors. They were going to deal with these people, and then all of a sudden they're not there. They don't know what to do. They don't even know what to think. And then they get word that the apostles are not only not there, but they get word of where they are. They are standing in the temple. They are teaching the people. And when the priests and the council find Jesus' disciples not only missing from the jail, but very much present and right back at it in the temple, they are again confronted with a choice. They could have faith or rejection. 
There's no way to deny what has happened. But no amount of proof, no amount of proof alone can bring faith. And so we see in the following verses, in verses 26 to 33, a second wave of persecution about to come. The, disciples, uh, the apostles are going to be arrested again. At this point, the leaders collected themselves and they prepared to pour another wave of suppression on these would-be preachers. The captain with the officers went and arrested them again and brought them before the council. But note that they didn't bring them by force. And this was because they were scared of being stoned by the people. Significantly, the apostles did not appeal to popular opinion for protection against the religious leaders here. I mean, they could have incited the crowd by shouting, are you, are you really going to let them take us away? But their trust was in God and God alone. The hearts of the religious leaders was again exposed here. They feared the people, but they did not fear God, who clearly showed that he was at work among the disciples. And the high priest questioned them, saying, Didn't we tell you to not teach in his name? Yet you keep doing it. You're trying to put his blood on our hands. And we see the religious leaders' true colors so clearly here. They love power, and they love influence, and they are terrified of losing it. And so they blurt out that the apostles are trying to bring this man's blood on us. Yet they were the ones that said, Let him be crucified. And his blood be on us and our children in Matthew 27. Their actions are grounded in a desire to hold their power and not at all in honesty or theological convictions. And what's the response of the apostles to the second wave of persecution? And really, I'd say it's a haymaker punch. It's blunt. It is bold. We see here in the response of the apostles that we must fear God and not man. They say, yes, you told us to stop preaching, but we don't obey man. We obey God. And as they set it up, then they launch into them. In verses 30 to 32, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The Sanhedrin was concerned with man's opinion and not God's. And the apostles' response, it wasn't even a defense of their actions. It was a simple, bold explanation of what they were doing and what they were going to continue to do. They would serve God and not man. They gave a testimony that was faithful to the foundation of the Christian faith. Peter spoke here of man's guilt. Jesus, whom you murdered. He spoke of Jesus' death and them hanging him on a tree. He spoke of Jesus' resurrection, saying, Him God exalted at his right hand. And he spoke of man's responsibility to respond, saying to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And so in that, they declared that Jesus, whom the chief priests had crucified, was still alive and still reigning in glory, enthroned at the right hand of God. 
that they were only fulfilling his royal commands when they were standing in the temple and they were teaching the people. And to finish it off, they say, we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit. This was a reliable testimony because it was based on eyewitness testimony, which was also confirmed by God. Their fearlessness here brings to mind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they stood before King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3, 16 to 18, and they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. How was this remarkable liberation and power that is seen in the apostles and seen here in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how, how was that gained? It's gained through obedience. Peter and the apostles began their answer in verse 29 by saying, we must obey God rather than man. And they concluded it by saying, we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The witnessing power of the Holy Spirit is released through obedience to Christ, to the word, to the inner voice of his guidance. And so we ask, how does that become a reality in our lives right now? And some good questions to ask ourselves and ask ourselves consistently are, am I living consistently in view of what I know about Christ? Am I living a life that is in accord with what I am learning in the Scriptures? Am I refusing to do what I know He wants? And am I refusing to share my faith because of fear of rejection or appearing unintellectual or uncultured or any other reason? We cannot have the power of the Holy Spirit if we are saying no to Him. Peter and the apostles had clearly and briefly explained to them once again the core idea of who Jesus was and what he did on the cross and how we should respond to who Jesus is and what he did. How would they respond? With logic? Reason? With repentance? No. Their reaction was furious anger. We can imagine what went through their minds. Who are you to tell us to repent? We don't need this forgiveness. Don't blame us for the death of Jesus. Do you know who we are? And we see that through their response. Their response was they plotted to kill, him, uh, to kill them. Have you ever been so angry that you just don't even, you can't even think? You're just so mad? I'm, I am the oldest of four boys. And our house was high energy and sports all the time. There was a lot of testosterone. And I remember one time, we call it the Clementine fight, between me and my brother Josh, who's three years younger than me. And he had gotten mad at my mom or something, and he punched a hole in my door. And I did nothing. I had nothing to do with it. And I was so mad. I was eating a Clementine at the time. I'd eaten the Clementine. I had the peel in my hands. And I was like, I can't even think. He just like punches this hole in my door, and my only response is, 
I'm going at him. And I threw the Clementine across the playroom, and we went at it. And I think we fought in my room and in the playroom and in the living room, and we ended up on the couch. And then we just kind of, like, realized what was happening. We're like, this is ridiculous. And we're, we're laughing, but it's like we don't remember what even happened. We were both just so angry that we completely lost it. Now, I'll have you know, it has been well over a decade since I've gotten in a fist fight with my brothers or anybody, but that was, that was one of the last times, but it's not a great example, but I was so mad, I just couldn't even think. So I threw a clementine, and we, we went at it. Well, these evil, calculated men just lost control. They no longer feared the people that they had feared just a bit earlier, They no longer feared them in this moment because they were blind with rage. Except one who, not to give credit where credit is not due, but one thinks not of murder but of his reputation. We see here this third wave of persecution where the apostles are beaten. We see here how this came about. At this point, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a man who was respected by the people, he speaks up. And much could be said about this man, but... To, to really sum it up, he was among the best of the Pharisees, and he was a man of moderation. He was a man of great reputation. He, people respected him. And so he gives orders to put the men outside for a little while. And tell, go out there, let's, let's, let's calm down a bit and come up with the solution. And so he tells them, tells the Sadducees, think through what you're going to do here. And he gives the examples of situations in the past. First, he gives Theodos who claimed to be somebody, and he gained a following of about 400. And he got killed, and all of his followers, they they dispersed, they scattered. And after that, Judas, the Galilean, rose up, and he also drew a following, and he also died, and his followers also scattered. And his conclusion was that if this movement was man-made, it's going to fail. Everyone will just scatter. But if it's actually from God, you can't stop it anyway. And his reasoning brought about a compromise. The apostles would be let off easy, as, as far as a brutal beating can be called getting, getting off easy. The apostles are scorched. The lashing consisted of striking the victim's bare skin with a tripled strip of calf's hide. They would do it in sets of threes. So two blows to the back and one to the chest. And the beating would strip the skin off of their backs. And it was meant to be a serious lesson. It's not one that you would forget. The apostles left the presence of the council. And the leaders, they thought that they could intimidate and discourage the apostles. But we see in the response of the apostles after this beating, they rejoiced. Not at their suffering. They're not crazy. They're not like, that was just the greatest beating ever. But they were rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And then, in the face of being charged to not speak the name of Jesus, they went to the temple every day. And they went house to house, speaking the name of Jesus, teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And as we move forward in the book of Acts, chapter 6 will tell us, The church grew. We see here we can rejoice in suffering because our hope is secure in Christ. 
This passage challenges each of us as followers of Jesus. Waves of persecution piled on the apostles. And just because our passage ended does not mean that those waves ended. They most certainly did not. We know that they didn't. They knew that they wouldn't. Yet they would not stop preaching. Nothing would stop them from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's tempting in our lives to find the threat of rejection to be enough to keep quiet about the gospel. We need to have the apostles' courage and determination to stand firm for Jesus. And this isn't just a temptation and a struggle that we face right now. If we look back hundreds of years ago to a man I quote all the time, Charles Spurgeon spoke of this kind of bold heart. He said, now I charge every Christian here to be speaking boldly in Christ's name, according as he has opportunity, and especially to take care of this tendency of our flesh to be afraid, which leads practically to endeavors to get off easily and to save ourselves from trouble. Fear not. Be brave for Christ. Live bravely for him who died lovingly for you. We are not expected to be perfect or to be faultlessly consistent in our faith and walk. We know that we are sinners in need of a Savior. But we also know that that Savior is Jesus, and we are expected to be joyful. We are expected to persevere, to learn from the apostles who are buoyant and resilient and liberated and victorious, who because of their faithfulness, We are sitting here today, 2,000 years later, rejoicing in the same gospel. Do we face the same persecution that they did here in Seaford? No, we don't face the same persecution that they did, but we make a massive mistake if we think that we are immune. We face waves of opposition. But those waves of opposition, a lot of times, are more subtle. They're more sneaky at times. Sometimes we don't even know that they have overwhelmed us, yet we find ourselves in the midst of them. But the enemy knows, and he celebrates because we no longer speak and teach all the words of this life. And when we are in such a state as that, the world doesn't see the glory of men and women fully alive. Our disobedience cuts us off from the power of the Holy Spirit, and there's no joy there. And at those times... We need to be set free. We need to know the liberty that God has given to his children. We still feel waves of opposition when we take a stand for him, when we share the gospel, or when we obey God over people. I'm not here to tell you that if you just do that, everything in your life will be easy, and you will never face a wave of opposition again. You will. But when we face those waves, and we stand firm, and we rejoice in Christ— We will also feel his pleasure. We remember our hope and our confidence is in Christ alone. Christians have faced this type of hostility throughout church history. Evil leaders have beaten and tortured Christians from the days of the apostles to right now in our world. But no one can ultimately stop the mission of the king. Every time the gospel is opposed in Acts, God finds a way to advance the message. 
Some of the most overt attempts to squelch the movement, like the persecution of the church in Jerusalem, lead to a further expansion of the gospel. You know, we see that as we hear testimonies from the persecuted church, you know, in our day here and now, when persecution strikes hard, a lot of times the church thrives. No one is able to overthrow the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation, both here in Jerusalem in this passage and to the ends of the earth. What a comfort Acts 5 must be to the suffering church and parts of the world that are facing harsh persecution. And what an encouragement it is to us, or to those that, that continue to be mocked or shunned or intimidated or shamed right here in America. If you find yourself suffering as a Christian, rejoice. You are in good company. Do you want to, do you want to feel real Christian joy? Then follow the Acts model. Be compassionate towards the needy. Be bold in your Christian witness. And be filled with integrity, respect, and humility before people. As you do that, you will face opposition. And you will be filled with joy. Not just now, but even billions of years from now in eternity. You will never regret having suffered for the name of Christ. Christians can take a beating with joy. Because Jesus took the ultimate beating for us, even rising from the dead for us. Align yourself with Jesus, and you too can rejoice. At this time, the band is going to come up, and I'm going to pray. But let me encourage you this morning. If you have not come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, trust in Him today. Trust in Christ, the Son of God, who lived perfectly, sinless. He never sinned in thought, in word, or in deed. Who died on the cross for our sins, not just a physical death, but who took on the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin and our rebellion. And who defeated sin and death as only God could and rose from the grave. He is mighty to save. And if you would like to talk about that this morning, myself and Pastor Ben are here. I'll be out there at the Meet the Pastor table afterwards. I, we would both love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, the supreme example of these men as wave upon wave of opposition and oppression came upon them. God, as we see them surface so buoyantly, as they obeyed your command to speak, as they determined to obey you rather than men, as they rejoiced in their suffering. God, we see all of that, and we know that that is beyond us, for it is supernatural. But God, we pray that you would teach us how to live out our faith amidst oppression, however it comes. We pray that you help us to be buoyant and joyous and effervescent, for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.